Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this wonderful day, for being here with us. Open your word to us that we may understand it. Thank you for this opportunity to study and to sharpen one another and to be sharpened from your word in the Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Um, last week, we started talking about spiritual gifts. We're going to continue this week. And um, let's go back just as a little quick review. Number one, all Christians have a spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, you have one. Um, if you don't have a spiritual gift, you're not a Christian. They're given to you by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation to minister to the body of Christ. Each gift is actually a mixture of enablements. It's not just one gift that you have. We often talk about, well, somebody has the gift of preaching. Well, they might have the gift of preaching, but they also have the gift of knowledge and of exhortation and of wisdom. Because if all you could do was talk, but you didn't know what to talk about, it wouldn't probably be a whole lot of good for anybody. So each gift is actually a mixture. We're going to talk about this. A mixture of different divine enablements that the Holy Spirit mixes up and gives to you individually. It's not a talent. Um, God may take one of your talents and turn it into, um, or use it as part of your spiritual gift, but not necessarily. And we talk about what talents are. Baking pies, singing in the choir, that's not a, a, a spiritual gift. That may be a talent. Um, but God can use that in the gift of helps and maybe exhortation, but in and of itself, singing is not a spiritual gift because there's a lot of good singers out there that don't know the Lord. All right? Unless you want to say Britney Spears has the spiritual gift. You, uh, I've never heard her sing. So They are given empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is important. They're not empowered by you. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a special... When you're exercising your spiritual gift, the Holy Spirit gives you energy, gives you power to exercise that. It's not from you. Rather, it's from God. And you know that. They're given to minister to others, not yourselves. I think this is where we left off. Spiritual gifts are not given for your benefit. Um, that would sort of kill the, a lot of the modern charismatic movement who wants to sort of say that the spiritual gift, especially that of tongues, is for your own edification and benefit. That's not what a spiritual gift is for. A spiritual gift is to minister to other people. It is other-centered. It's not you-centered. The only um, benefit you get out of the spiritual gift is the joy of exercising it. All right? God gives you joy when you exercise your spiritual gift. But it's not given for you. It's not given for your benefit. It's given for the health of the body of Christ. And if you've read the passages on spiritual gifts, you see that, especially in 1 Corinthians 12:7. And following, it talks about the body. It talks about an eye and a foot. And the eye needs the foot. The foot needs the eye. We all need one another. Um, and I said, if you're not exercising your spiritual gift, you're out of the will of God. You need to do that, whatever that gift is. You need to find it, and you need to start exercising it. Because that's only when the body of Christ really gains its full strength. It's when all of us are doing what God has designed us and gifted us to do. They are essential to the health of the body of Christ. This sort of goes along with the first one. Nobody has an unessential gift. One of the dangers, and we finished last class talking about it, is you know if you're an eye with 20-20 vision, but you don't have feet to carry you from place to place, all you do is look at the same stuff. And if you're a foot without an eye, you don't know where you're going. We all need one another. All of us in here... Whatever your spiritual gift is, it's something that God has gifted you that enables you to really contribute to the health of the body of Christ. And you might think, well, that's, I don't have a very flashy or a very showy or a very prominent gift. It's irrelevant. There's a lot of parts of your body that are not very prominent, but if you don't have them, you're dead. All right? Um, it's needed. And only when all of us do our part in the body of Christ, only when all of us are exercising our gift, do you really see the body of Christ thrive? And sometimes, you know, we think, well, we, we need somebody, we need a good pastor. Well, yeah, you need a good pastor. But you also need people that sweep floors. You need people to clean the bathrooms. You need people that watch the kids on Sunday morning. You need people that mind the children's um, services and things like that. Without those people, we come to a grinding halt just as quickly as if we didn't have anybody preach to us. We all are needed in the body of Christ, and we need to find our spot 
and do it. Whatever that is. And there's no excuse for not exercising your spiritual gift. One other major point is they are to unite the body of Christ, not divide it. This is very important. Um, if you have cells in your body that try to divide the body, what happens? You die. You die. They're not to divide the body of Christ. And one of the problems that you have in some of the charismatic circles is, is those with spiritual gifts, there's division there. If you don't have the gift, you're not one of us. You're out. I've known people that say, if you don't have the spiritual gift of tongues, so to speak, you're not really a Christian. You're out. You're, you're second class. You're not, you're not one of us. We're the spiritual ones. You're not. Um, Paul really chided. In fact, the, uh, interesting, the whole section on 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, to a large extent, is written by Paul to deal with this major problem in the Corinthian church. Because what had happened in the Corinthian church, which is probably one of the most, um, probably the worst church you want imaginable, the most problems of any church in the New Testament, it was divided. The church was divided, and it was divided over spiritual gifts. Uh, some people who had certain gifts looked down on others who didn't have those same gifts. And Paul has to write 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 to talk about this. And right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is what chapter? 13. And what's 13 known as? And what's Paul trying to say in the love chapter? That's the most important one of all. If you have the gift of the tongues of angels and you don't have love, you're like a clanging gong. If you, don't have, if you give your body to be burned, if you give everything, if you sacrifice everything and you do it without love, it's worthless. At the end of that, he says, There abideth these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest one? It's your motivation. God is love. Do you need faith in heaven? Why not? It's realized. Do you need hope in heaven? You got it, right? But what is eternal? Love. Love is the only eternal one. Everything else is temporary. Faith and hope are temporary. They're temporary for this life. Love is eternal. And that's what makes it the greatest. And Paul is basically saying in 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 13, if you don't exercise your gift, whatever that gift is, if you don't do it out of a heart of love, you're like a clanging gong, a tinkling cymbal. It's worthless. It's worthless. You've got to exercise your gift out of love for other people. And what, by necessity, what does love do? It unites. It doesn't divide. Now that does not mean, understand what we're talking about here, that does not mean if someone with the gift of discernment sees error, say, oh, you're not allowed to cause division in the body of Christ, we just got to allow the error. No, if your body sees a cancer cell, what does it do with it, hopefully? Cuts it out. All right, kills it. You've got to do that. That's, that's the health of the body, right? You've got a foreign invading organism. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about division. We talk about division, we're talking about people who argue and fight over who has the best gift and looking down on others that don't have the same gifting that they have. You've got to understand that everybody, every one of us in here is gifted differently. Not all of you are gifted to be a teacher. You're not. So don't try to be. And if I have the gift of teaching, it's bad for me to try and think everybody should be a teacher. Just as if I have the gift of, um, if I'm a missionary and I think everybody needs to be on the mission field or everybody needs to be doing this or everybody... That's not the way the body of Christ works. God has gifted all of us differently. And we need to rejoice in the diversity that God has given and to allow others to do their part and we do our part and do it out of a heart of love and you find that the body functions very well. There's health to the body. It's not division. And anytime you see division happening, you need to... Here's the, here's the thing to understand. When you see Christians fighting, one or both of them are out of the will of God, Right? Because what does the spirit bring? Unity. Unity. Yeah, but they didn't hate each other. They didn't hate each other. I mean, I think you're talking about what Paul and 
Barnabas, the split there? Yeah, they had a they had a disagreement. It's okay to have disagreements. Yeah, it's okay to have disagreements. It's how you handle those disagreements. Do you allow them to divide, divide and split? No. In that case, for example, in Acts, what did Barnabas do? He took Mark and went on a missionary journey. Paul took Sil- I think Silas and went on a missionary journey. So instead of one, you have two now. Wasn't there a time too that Paul said he didn't want to go with he didn't want somebody to come with him? Was it Mark? Yeah, it was John Mark who who left. You gotta understand. You know, Paul's a type A. He's a type double A. He's on the run all the time. And if you don't run to keep up with him, you know, he gets irritated with you. That doesn't mean did he hate John Mark? No, because later on. At the end of his ministry, what did he say? Bring him along. Bring him along. We're not talking here about disagreements. You can have disagreements. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to to discuss the best way to do certain things. It happens on our board all the time. We'll discuss and we'll have different ways of doing anything. But in the end, the Holy Spirit brings us a unit, a sense of unity, and we go in that direction. All right. That's that's the way the body should work. That's the way the health of the body should work. But when you have people who cause splits and fights, and there are some people, if there's not a fight going, they just don't know what's going on. They've got to keep things stirred up. You know, and um, yeah, I think all of us here know a few people like that. got to keep it stirred up. When you have that, somebody's not listening to the Spirit because the Spirit brings unity. And sometimes you may have to just say, we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about this a little more until we all have a sense that this is the direction we need to go in. And the Holy Spirit will do that. He'll bring, he'll bring that. All right? But when you have two Christians that are just totally fighting at odds, hating one another, one or both of them are out of the will of God because they're not being led by the Spirit. The Spirit brings unity. All right? And they're to unite it. They're to unite the body of Christ to go forward, not to split it apart. And to create different, and that's this is one of the great problems in some churches. You have tiers of spirituality depending on what gift you have, like a caste system. That's wrong. That's wrong. That that's a total misunderstanding of what a spiritual gift is. Because what Paul basically says is the people with the least prominent gifts are usually the most important to the health of the body of Christ. And that's that's just the way God has designed things. They are not a major spirituality. We'll talk about this a little bit. They're not a major spirituality. You know, we think, oh, somebody has a gift of teaching. They're more spiritual than other people in the church. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. They have the gift of preaching. They're, they're more, they're, they've got to be the godliest person in the church. Not necessarily. They're not a major spirituality. And that's the problem that the Corinthian believers had. They, they thought that the people with the gift of tongues, they had hit a second level of spirituality. They, they, they were in. Benny Hinn wrote a book, Good Morning Holy Spirit. And basically the idea of the Good Morning Holy Spirit book was, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you, you, you become a Christian, you've got to get kicked up to the second level, which is now you can speak in tongues and talk to the Holy Spirit. And then he wrote another book where there's another level, the anointing. You get kicked up even higher. And what you have in his system is tiers of Christians. You've got the ones who, yeah, they're going to get to heaven, they're going to get in there, but you know they're really not the spiritual godly ones. The real godly ones are the ones that speak in tongues. The real godly ones are the ones that do miracles. And that's not what spirituality is about. Uh, perhaps it wouldn't hurt to explain why they feel so strongly about the tongues issue because of their misinterpretation of Acts 2, saying they say therefore that speaking in tongues is evidence of the filling, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, and uh, that must happen for you to be fully. <coughs> saved. Mm-hmm. That's why tongues are so important because on the day of Pentecost all of those people spoke in tongues but they don't understand that that was the uh, entrance uh, universally into the body of Christ right. of the Holy Spirit who had to cause those unlearned folk to speak to people of their language mm-hmm. that which he had to say and he caused those people who did not know um, 
you know, how to speak in another, you know, various, there were like 19 languages. There were languages. Day. Yeah. So there were languages that had to be understood by each of those people groups. Mm -hmm. It is a total misunderstanding of tongues. We're going to spend a class all on tongues. I'm talking about that. Because as, as was pointed out here, some people say, well, you've got to have the gift of tongues as an Acts too. Well, when you look at Acts, there's four times that the tongues fall on people. You've got Acts 2 with the, uh, the, the, the day of Pentecost. You have, um, I think, Acts 8 with the Samaritans. You have Acts 10 with Cornelius and his household. And then you have Acts 19 where you have the Old Testament people, the, the disciples of John who, were, who, were, who received the Holy Spirit. And so the question you have to ask is if, Holy, if tongues is normative, which normal way do you receive it? Do you tarry like they did in Acts 2? Do you get it to the moment of salvation as they did in Acts 19? Um, do you have the apostles lay hands on you as they did in Acts 8? Do you wait for Peter to show up and as it did in Acts 10? Which is normal? And, and you have to make that argument. Which one's normal? Because there's different ways in which the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when you understand what tongues is, all tongues were, tongues were a sign and it was a known language. It's not gobbledygook. It's not the junk you hear on TV now. That's, 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 that's baby talk. That's like kids blabbing. That, that's not language. It's not, somebody did a long, extensive study. They, they took tapes of all of these guys speaking in tongues. And they were a philologist. You know what those are. Language type people. And they could find no discernible syntax in any of it. What's syntax? Meaning. They could find no meaning. They could find no discernible patterns of speech. It's not language. It's babblers. It's babbling. It's not language. Okay? In Acts, it was language. Because if you look at Acts 2, the people are there saying, how can we understand in our own language? All right? They understood. There were people there who knew what was being said. Now compare that to the average charismatic service today. Nobody knows what's being said. All right? It, it, you gotta, you know, if you, if you want to go down the route of believing tongues is valid, then you've got to do it the biblical model. And if you're not going to go the biblical model, then it's probably not the right thing. Because what Paul basically said, even he pointed out in Corinthians that what they were, they were doing was not the valid gift of tongues. And it's interesting, um, there's a book called uh, Corinthian Cat Catastrophe. It's written by a guy, um, Gardner, I think it is his name, wrote this book, Corinthian Cat Catastrophe. And uh, if, you, if you go to Corinth in those days, if you show up in Corinth and you walked a few miles to the north, you'd hit a town called Delphi. Anybody know what Delphi was famous for? The oracle at Delphi. And it was part of the uh, mystery religions of those days. And the way it worked in those days is that you would go to the oracle at Delphi with your question, whatever it is, and you go into the smoke-filled room and there'd be somebody there and they'd mumble something in an unknown gobbledygook-type language. And then you'd have somebody there saying, well, she said blah, 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 blah. Because supposedly the gobbledygook language was she was in commune with the gods. Now, you had no idea what she said, but somebody told you what she said. And you walked out with your prophecy, whatever that was that you wanted. And that's the same kind of stuff that had leaked down into the Corinthian church. They were no different than what was going up at Delphi. And, if you do, and this is a great historical study to do if you want to do that, to dive into that. But tongues is a known language, and we're going to talk about that in great detail. It is a known language that people can understand, that could be interpreted that could be translated, and the people that were there certainly understood what it was. They said, how can, we, how can they be speaking our language, and the other word there in the Greek is dialecta, dialect. It's not only language, but it's the subtongues of the language. They understood what was going on. It was a sign. But we're going to talk about that in greater detail. Don't worry about it. But they're not a measure of spirituality. There are showy gifts, there are non-showy gifts. But they're not a measure of spirituality. All of you today are benefiting in this class because I have the gift of teaching, all right? But Teresa Hamilton has the gift of helps, 
that gives you coffee and donuts and gives you the handouts. Now, how many of you would stay and still come if you had no handouts, no donuts, and no coffee? <laughs> All right. Dave already said, I'm out of here. You know, if I don't have my donut, I'm out of here. You know. All it is here, look, look how it works, you know. Now, now, you know, she comes in, she does her thing, she goes and sits in the back row. Nobody knows, you know, that she's the one that does all this. But she comes here every Sunday and gets all the coffee and all the donuts and all the stuff ready and makes the, you know, it adds to the class. We all do our part. Somebody paid money to keep the lights on. Other people come in and they move the tables around. I mean, it's, it, that's the way the body is to work. And you think, well, you know, he's, he's the prominent one. He's one up there yabbing. Yeah, but there's other people that are just as critical and essential to this class functioning and to this church functioning that you never see, that you don't know are, are even there. But if they aren't, there's a detriment to the body. They fall into various categories. When we start talking about spiritual gifts now, we're going to go in and look at the different categorizations of spiritual gifts. Um, as you look in um, the different passages, and these, are, these are, by the way, the four New Testament passages having to do with spiritual gifts. You see they fall into various categories. 1 Peter 4.10 speaks of serving and speaking gifts. Just broad categorizations. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards. What's a steward? Yeah, you're a steward of the manifold grace of God. What did we say manifold meant there? Multicolored. You receive a gift that God expects you to be a steward of. You ever stop and think about that? Your spiritual gift is a stewardship given to you by God, and God's going to reward you on how well or poorly you exercise the gift that He's given you. What do you do with the opportunities that He's given you? What do you do with the resources? You want a good uh, parable of that? Remember the parable of the minus, the pounds in Luke? The master goes off and he calls in ten servants to give each of them a pound. And he says, I want you to go do business until I come back. And he comes back and the guy says, first guy says, well, I've got ten more. Wonderful, you get ten cities. Other guy says, i got five. Wonderful, you get five cities. Third guy came in and says, well, you know, I just hid it in a napkin, stuck it in the ground. Here's your pound back. And he says, you slothful, lazy, good-for-nothing servant. All of us are going to be held accountable for how we exercise our spiritual gift. And some of us are going to get a well done and some of us are going to get you good for nothing lazy person you. I gave you a gift and you didn't do anything with it. We're to be stewards of it. And then Paul said, and Peter says, if it's speaking, speak as the oracles of God. If it's serving, serve. He talks about speaking and serving. And these are just broad categorizations. When you look at the body of Christ, there are those who speak, teach, preach, evangelize, etc. And there are those who serve. All right, Broad categorizations. Peter's not trying to give a theology of spiritual gifts necessarily. He's just saying whatever major area your gifting falls into, you're to be a steward of that. Do it to the best of your ability, whatever that is. And then, if, yeah. Culturally, when I was growing up, there was a understood difference between what a preacher is and what a teacher is. I now know some of that was cultural, perhaps more so than actually theologically correct. So what is what would be your thoughts about the difference between the gift of preaching and the gift of teaching? Um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit when we talk about the different ways gifts are given. But for example, a, a preacher and a teacher both have the gift of speaking, hopefully. <laughs> or you wouldn't listen to them. Um, teaching is probably more, I would say it's more interactive, more facilitating. Um, Jim doesn't ask the audience questions when he preaches. Preaching is more of a delivery of a lecture, not an interaction. Um, per se. Um, that's probably the, the major, the major difference. Some people are really good preachers, but they don't do well 
with interaction, other people are good interactors and are not very much of a preacher. <coughs> See, I'm more, I'm probably more of the teaching component. Could I preach? Probably, but I'd rather teach because I like the interaction. Uh, and it, and it's the gift of teaching in a, in a sense. It's just a different way in which it is taught. It's a different way to do it. And that's one of the things you find about spiritual gifts. Think of, think of teaching as the color red. You know, you've got bright red, you've got rose red, you've got a pinkish red. You know, you've got all, by the way, you can see six million different colors. I looked that up. The human eye can perceive six, perceive six million different colors. Um, but, but you've got different shades of red. Now, it's all red, but look how many different shades there are. And that's the way it is with teaching. You've got the gift of teaching, but there's all kinds of shades of teaching, you know. And each one of them has a beauty in and of itself and a, and a purpose in and of itself. So that's sort of five minutes probably. On, but yeah, it's, it, there, there's a difference there. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 lists several different enablements, including sign gifts. We're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about each one of them, by the way, so don't worry about it. We'll get through every one. Um, and I, I, again, I don't think what Paul is trying to do in 1 Corinthians 12 is give an exhaustive list of all the different ones. He's just saying, for instance, there's these gifts. Okay. Um, Ephesians 4 lists four gifted men given to the church for edification. The, who are those? When he said on how he gave gifts to the church, and what gifts did he give them? First, apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastor-teachers. And the word there in the Greek probably needs to be hyphenated. It's not a pastor, comma, teacher, pastor-teacher, a shepherd-teacher. Okay. Um, and these are the gifted men that are given to the church for the purpose of what? Edifying. What's edification? Ah, so the gift of the gifts that God gave to the church are not to divide it. It is to build it up. It's to pull it together. It's to unify it. And that's what you need to be doing with your gifts of teaching and and these gifted offices here. Um, Romans 12, 8 through 10 lists several other enablements, some of them that are not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. And again, that's why I don't think Paul's trying to give an exhaustive list. Because in Romans, he lists a few gifts that are not, or enablements, I should say enablements, that are not listed in 1 Corinthians 12. He's just saying, for instance, for instance. All right? And they fall into various categories. There's, there's different categories of giftedness. All right? They sort of clump together. Okay? Now, the four major texts, and I mentioned in the other slide, are these here. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's really really the definitive one. I mean, that, that one just really fills the whole theology out, if you want to think about it. 1 Corinthians 4.11 talks about the gifted offices and officers. Then 1 Peter 4.8 through 10 talks about speaking and serving gifts. But the common theme in all of these is that the Spirit gives the gifts, the Spirit empowers the gifts, they're given to unify the body of Christ, and they're necessary if the body of Christ is to function in a healthy, vibrant way. All of them are needed. Okay? So let's look at various ways in which they're categorized. If you pick up a book on spiritual gifts, um, they categorize spiritual gifts different ways. Um, some categorize them as the permanent versus temporary. We're going to talk about that. What's the permanent gift? What would permanent mean? What do you think a permanent gift would mean? Get it and keep it. You know, yeah. Just there for a while. That's one way to look at it. Eternal? Well, long-lasting, maybe not eternal. I mean, are we going to have preachers in heaven? No. no, you're going to know everything. You don't need to be preached to in heaven. Um, the idea of permanent there is permanent in terms of church history in terms of the life of the church in the church age. In other words, from the earliest time all the way to the end of the church age, you're going to have preaching, giving, mercy. Those are permanent gifts. Those are not temporary. They don't come and go. 
whereas the temporary gifts were signs used in the early church. Signs of tongues, healings, miracles. They were signs. They were not meant to be normative throughout church history. They were there for a time and a purpose. Now this is really the split between those who would say the gift of tongues is valid today and those who say it is not. I, for example, believe that the gift of tongues was a temporary gift. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, temporary. Does that mean God cannot give the valid gift of tongues today? No, he can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need my permission to do what he wants to do. But if he did give the gift of tongues today, what would it look like? It would be what the Bible says the gift of tongues is. All right? That's what it would be. It wouldn't be this gobbledygook that you see on TV. It would be a valid gift, gifting. All right? Um, God can do whatever, can, can God do a miracle today if he wants to? Sure, he can do anything he wants. But does God do it as a normal part of everyday life? No, he does not. We're talk about this. But these are the, this is one categorization. You've got permanent gifts that you see throughout church history. They don't go away. And then you've got these sign gifts that are there for a purpose, for a reason, for a temporary time, and then they cease their operation. You've got speaking versus serving gifts. This is what Peter sort of uses. You've got the speaking gifts of preaching, teaching, exhortation. And then you've got the serving gifts. Mercy, helps, administration. You're not speaking, you're serving. You're doing things. Um, and then you've got another way to put it, the speaking, serving, and then they throw in the sign. You've got your speaking gifts, serving gifts, and then the sign gifts, which are tongues, healing, and miracles. All right? Different ca and that's just, this just, you know, as you pick up books on spiritual gifts, they're going to categorize them different ways. Each one approaches it sort of like a different way. I approach it, my best understanding is this third categorization there, but that's just me. An eclectic view would see, put them all together and say, well, you got your speaking gifts that fall into two categories, your permanent and temporary. What's the permanent speaking gifts? Well, preaching, teaching, exhortation, edification, all those are permanent. We all have those today. But there were some temporary speaking gifts were, which were predictive prophecy. All right? In the New Testament, was there prophecy in the predictive sense? Sure it was. Why was that? Yeah, they don't have the full, complete revelation of God. You didn't have this. In fact, where did Paul get some of his theology? He didn't read the Bible because there wasn't one to read. Where did he get it? Got it from Christ. Christ taught him. So yeah, there was, there, was a, there was a time when there was a valid, prophetic, predictive component to the, the spiritual gift. Somebody could get revelation directly from God. Now the big question is, do they get revelation today? And I would say no, they don't, because if they did, they should be writing it down. It should be part of the scripture, right? Mm -hmm. But isn't there going to be a time towards the end? Tribulation. What's that? Tribulation period. In the millennium it's talking about. Where the young men are going to have dreams and visions? Millennium. Really? Yeah. Not church age. How can there be prophecy during the tribulation if the spirit of the Lord is supposed to be absent during that time? He's not. I thought that that's. I know that's a bad that's a bad theology. If the Holy Spirit is not absent, no, 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 it's not. No, no, don't 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 feel embarrassed. A lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit isn't here in the tribulation. Well, if he's not here, how can anybody get saved? All right. Now, does the spirit the Spirit's operation, the way He operates is different. But if there's no Holy Spirit, there's no conviction of sin. There's, no, there's nobody saved. So we're still going to have people coming to God. Oh, yeah. Great multitude. Multitudes and multitudes. Yes. Church at that time, people were speaking in tongues, not just 
in the, in the early in the early part of the church, early time of the church, people were speaking in tongues, but they were not giving predictive prophecy. They were proclaiming the truth that had already been revealed. That's the difference. In Acts, when 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 Acts two, when the Holy Spirit came, and they spoke in tongues, were they given new revelation at that time? No, they were preaching the wonderful works of God. Everybody's hearing it in their own language, but it was not like new theological stuff that no one had ever heard before. All right. Invalidly. Invalid. He said, if, if, in first, by the way, in Corinthians, we're going to explore this in, in detail, but when Corinthians, Corinthians was written, it was about AD 51, 52, you still had the valid gift of tongues in operation, but it was the valid gift. What the Corinthians had done is they had totally distorted that into some invalid gobbledygook kind of thing, and they were getting up saying all kinds of weird things, as though supposedly God was giving them revelations. All right? If you look at the early church history, you look at all the, you know, the, the pre-Nicene fathers and all that, you find that tongues were operative up to somewhere around mid-50s. Mid-50s. Then after that, there is absolutely no mention of tongues other than some cults that arose, the Montanists, they're called Montanism, um, which was a heretical form of Christianity denied the deity of Christ. I think we talked about the Montanists back when we were doing um, Christology, all right? But they're heretical, but there's no mention of it as, as, as a normative part of the church. All the, all the anti-Nicene fathers, you know, the, the second generation after the apostles, they didn't talk about tongues. It was not in any, yeah, it was not even mentioned, all right? And we're going to talk about that, you know, we're getting some rabbit trail. We're going to get there, don't worry about it. Okay. It was gone. Yeah, it was gone by the time. And, and you look at that. When you look at the New Testament, tongues is mentioned in the book of Acts, which takes you, you know, up to Paul's. Let's see, the the the, the Acts 19 would have been on his second missionary journey, I think it is, second or third, and that would be somewhere around the the mid 50s. All right. Um, Corinthians was before that. All the rest of Acts was before that. After, really, after the period of like A.D. 55, there's no mention of tongues in the New Testament anywhere. Paul doesn't mention them in the pastoral epistles. They're not mentioned in the general epistles. You know, um, Hebrews, James, for Second Peter doesn't talk about them. They're just not mentioned. Pardon? When did it come back? When did it come back? It really came back in force in 1960. About 1960, where it jumped in. Before that, it was you know aberrational groups off here and there doing some things, but it really didn't hit the mainline denominations till 1960. Azusa Street, yeah, and and uh, Los Angeles, the land of the fruit and the nuts. All right, um, but that's when it really became prominent again, supposedly. All right. There, there, there was, there was, but it was not in the mainline denominations. Yeah, there were, there were always, there were always fringe groups that had it. You're right. There were always these fringe groups that had it, but it really hit the mainline denominations and really took off in the 60s. Um, you know, and from a, from like a practical point of view, how that whatever he intended to use, I don't know if I'll ever, will ever know or understand. But I mean, when those people spoke. In tongues, the languages, the people of Greece were gathered there in Jerusalem, heard, they went back and spoke it in Greece and delivered the gospel to their people. Yeah. The Russians weren't there, but I mean, they heard Whoever was there. that language and they went back and they don't need the use of tongues after they've heard it in right. the language. They themselves go and share. And tongues was a sign, and we're going we're to talk about it. You know, we're, well, tongues is a sign, it's a sign gift. All right? But there were temporary gifts. Now, do we have the gift of prophecy today? Well, yes, if you mean by that, the ability to speak. Alright, in fact, Paul talks about the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. And really, the, the Greek word prophecy, prophane, means to stand before and talk. Alright, I'm being a prophet in the sense that I'm standing before you and talking. 
But when we, in our English language, when we think of prophet, we think of predictive. Okay? And there is a predictive component, but that's not the only component as far as the Greek language is concerned. Someone's called a prophet if they just stood up in front of a group of people and spoke. Alright? But, in the New Testament, there was a predictive component that was in there as well as God was revealing His truth. And I believe that once that truth was revealed and written down, the predictive component went away. Alright? Because here's the problem when you start getting into this. How do I know that you're predicting the truth? How do I validate that? Right. But what if it doesn't come true? Then you're a false prophet. Right. And you know what you have today? Everybody says they have to give the prophecy. They are false prophets because they prophesy things that doesn't come to pass. And you judge it against the scripture. And a lot of times they contradict even the scripture. All right, we're, we'll talk, we're going to explore this a little bit. But once you open up that barn door that we have continuing prophecy today, the whole problem of how do I validate that comes into play. How do I know that God gave you that prophecy? What's the validation for that? In the New Testament, the validation usually was miracles, right? Paul came in the town, he was preaching the truth of the Word of God, and he raises somebody from the dead or heals somebody. And that was a, that was a, in fact, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. As you look throughout all of biblical history, alright, if you go down and, and you plot, you take a, you take a timeline and you plot miracles. You put a little dot where a miracle occurred, okay? You're gonna find that miracles clump around three general distinct area, um, periods in, in history. Anybody wanna guess what those are? Moses. Moses, there's lots of miracles there. You got, you know. Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and the apostles, lots of miracles there. One other. No. No. Elijah and Elisha, lots of miracles there. Okay. And they clump. And what you have, for example, um, at the end of, um, when, when it comes down to uh, Elijah and Elisha, after their time, you have a couple of miracles top, popped in there, you know, like Hezekiah with the sun, dial, sun going back. And a couple, but normative miracles, you just didn't have people just going miracle, 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 miracle. You had a couple of them here and there. And then in between Elisha and Moses, you didn't have a lot of miracles going on. Did you have God doing things once in a while? Well, sure, you had the time of the judges where there were some things that, that miraculous happened. But by and large, you didn't see miracle normative miracles. And then you got the time of Christ, and would you see a lot of miracles? And after that, what did you have? Not a lot. What was happening at each one of those three points? The guy was validating revelation. How do I know Moses has given me the law of God, and he just didn't go up on the mount and make this stuff up? How do I know he didn't make it up? Because he came down, and that truth was validated by miracles, by the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke by the Red Sea, by the manna in the wilderness. He must be talking of God because look at what's going on here with the miracles. So God was validating his truth. Elisha and Elijah, what were they doing? That was the time of the great prophetic prophecy, the, the, the writing of a lot of the Old Testament. What was God validating? His prophets. How do I know Elijah's telling me the truth? He does a miracle. Something that only God can do. And when Christ came, how did I know Christ was telling us the truth? Yeah, in fact, Christ said, if you don't believe me for my words, believe me for what? Miracles. And Nicodemus caught on to that, right? He said, we know your teacher come from God because no one can do what you're doing unless God is with them. He caught on to it. And they were told in the Old Testament to look for Yes. It was a validator. Miracles, and this is the thing, folks. Miracles is a validator when God is revealing new truth. How do I know the Apostle Paul is telling me the truth? Well, he, rose, he raised somebody from the dead. He, did, he healed somebody. He struck this guy blind, remember? I mean, how do I know that God is doing it? Because I see the miracles. It's a validation. Now, what's the difference? Because we know that Satan's also going to have power to do his counterfeit miracles. Yeah. Those who are elect will know the difference. And those who are not will be fooled. What's, what's going to happen in the tribulation? 
You've got the false prophet coming along, even causing fire to come down from heaven. That's a pretty cool trick there, you know. And anyone who has the mark of the beast will do what? Follow him. They'll be schnookered in. For that matter, the counterfeit miracle of making it appear as though the corpse of the Antichrist comes back to life. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things. Satan is a deceiver, but he's a mimicker. He mimics. Mm -hmm. false doctrine and there's so many people I sit and talk to visitors whatever that just they, they, they are against God's yeah. truth and I mean when you try to talk about even homosexuality with somebody that lie is so spread yep. throughout our Satan, can Satan heal? Yeah, yes he can and Satan will heal you to get you to go to hell he'll do it you gotta watch that alright but Alan I hate to throw a frog in the wheels here but no, nah, you don't. You like doing that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Regarding healing and miracles, if I'm following the, the statement that they are that they were temporary, and if I'm further following that, therefore they don't legitimately exist today, then. How does one explain uh, miracle healings from terminal diseases? Uh, how does things that have happened personally to individuals that they know isn't natural, for instance, and my cameo ladies are sick and tired of hearing this, but <laughs> I, I can't get over the fact that for me, I don't know what else to call it, but a miracle back in uh, the 80s when I had taken my children to see the circus. I was on welfare at the time and saved, saved, saved to take them to the circus. Enough money also saved for gas, right? So I take them. I somehow or another get lost on the way home and end up in Nova, Ohio. My car is about to run out of gas. I'm driving down 77. I start to pray, God, what shall I do? I have no money, so gas station is my answer. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the Spirit, I know it was the Spirit, spoke to me and said, get off at the next exit. I argued with the Spirit for a while because wouldn't it be smarter to drift? to a stop on the shoulder on 77, where a state trooper might see me, side street, probably not. But the, the urgency was so strong within me that I finally obeyed. I'm on this side street. My car drifts to a stop in front of this house. By now it's dark. This house sits back from the street. The car drifts to a stop exactly in front of the long sidewalk leading up to the front door. I don't know where I'm at. At the time, I did not know I was in Nova. I just knew I was lost. Have no choice. After praying, I get out of the car. My three kids are asleep in the back seat. I go to the front door. I knock. Tall, white gentleman opens the door. I tell him my story. I think he's, first of all, probably not going to open the door, but when he does, I think he's going to shut it. He doesn't. He uh, listens. He says, hmm, you have had this problem at the perfect place. I am the sheriff of this town. I happen to have my own gas tank in my backyard. I will get a gas can, get some, and put it in your car, and then I will drive back to my in-ground gas pump as though it's a filling station pump in the ground and fill up your car, at which point I'm in the house having been invited with my kids, we're drinking hot chocolate, he's filling up my car, and I say, but I still don't have any money to pay you. He says, that's fine. I say, what's your address? I'll send you when I get my welfare check. I do. And I don't know how to explain that if miracles don't exist today. Okay. Let's understand what we mean when we say miracles don't exist. We're not saying miracles don't exist, period. That's not what's being said. Mm -hmm. We're saying miracles are not normative. There's a difference. You understand? Get a difference? Can God do things for us? He's done things for me, miraculous things. 
I mean, I remember getting chased by my car down the middle of the road. I stayed in my own lane, watching my car come at me through my legs uplifted. And it stopped and it backed around me into this guy's front yard and stalled. And I got up and, you know, picked my stuff up, put it in the car and drove home. Um, I still remember that. Um, uh, it's not a saferism. It's a, it, was a, it was a true story. And, you know, did God, in a sense, miraculously save me from getting run over by my own car? Yeah, he did. All right. Um, God does those kind of things for us who are believers. Yeah, we're not talking about, you know, God turning the sun back, you know, or God, you know, like uh, I was listening to Gloria Copeland talk about Kenneth, who supposedly controls the weather now, and can command, yeah, this is wild. Um, That's not what we're talking, God does do those things for his children. He protects us, and when we get to heaven, we're going to probably be surprised of all the times that God pulled our fat out of the fire that we never knew about. All right, God does that. That's that's part of the spiritual life. Okay, but when we talk about miracles here, and we're talking about these kind of things, it's not it's not like it's normative. Can God heal people? Sure, He can. He can heal terminal diseases. If it's part of God's plan, you can be healed. But it may not be part of His plan. All right, and if one of the things we're going to talk about when we get to healing, if somebody had the valid apostolic gift of healing, they could go to any hospital and empty the place out. Why don't they? Why doesn't Benny Hinn go to O'Leary Memorial Hospital and empty it out? If he has the gift of healing, he could heal any disease. Christ could heal any disease. Did Christ tell the multitude, come back and I'll do lower back pain today and tomorrow we'll do headaches? No. He could heal anybody at any time. We're not saying that God does not miraculously intervene. We're not saying God does not do supernatural things. We are saying that as a normative part of the Christian life, you don't have people walking around today doing miracles like you had back then. Thank you. All right? That's the difference. Okay? He's, he's, like Sammy, you know, um, you know, we discussed this before, the different things that he has done miraculously for us is a validation of the revelation to us. It's, it's a, just as yeah. a, a mass healing would validate it to more people, but he, you know, you know, a lot of times when we're going forward, we don't see what's going on. You know, we're sort of insensitive. Then 20 years later, we're back and say, wow, look what happened. You know, I forgot all about that. Look what God did. How God moved. How God worked. You know, God does that all of the time. Okay? We're talking here about the, 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 the guy that stands up and says, I can heal anybody. And you've got people in wheelchairs and crutches and carried on in beds walking out perfectly healed. That's the kind of healing you see in the New Testament. You got a guy paralyzed for, you know, all his entire life. He gets up and walks out. All right? That's now that's that's healing. That's not what you see on TV today. All right? That's not what you see on at all. Um, you've got serving gifts, permanent versus temporary. Um, serving gifts would be the giving, administration, mercy. Temporary might be healings and miracles. And by the way, when we talk about miracles, usually. In the New Testament, whenever you see that term miracles, it's usually referring to demonic things where Christ casts out demons. Those are called miracles. All right, powers, dunamis. It's the casting out of demons. All right, um, and don't worry about these guys on TV that cast out the demons of post-nasal drip and the demons of whatever. Um, that, that's, that's silliness there. Okay, so if, if miracles are like that don't happen anymore, then... The Catholic Church believes that they can believe that when they, oh shoot, I can't think of an exorcism. Thank you. An exorcism. That's not. No, that's Satan playing along if it's valid. Um, you know, we, we, here's, here's the point. If you're not, here's something to understand. If you're not a believer, do you have any power over Satan? If you're not a believer, do you have any power of Satan? No. 
If you're a believer, do you have any power over Satan? No. Who has the power over Satan? God does. Alright, you just cooperate with him. So this exorcism, that, that's just, no. Yeah. Again, look, Satan will do anything he can to deceive you. He'll, he'll create a disease. Can Satan create diseases? Sure, look at Job. Or what about that woman bent double? Remember, Christ said, this woman that Satan is bound, she was bent double? Alright. Now, is every disease caused by Satan? No, it's not. Not every disease is caused by Satan, but Satan certainly can cause disease, and Satan can heal. And he'll do that just to make you think that you're all right. Oh, I think it happens. Right. Yeah. Right. Are there are there valid exorcisms? Yes, there are. There are. I mean, there is but recorded. Is, yeah. So we still have valid exorcisms. So yeah. Satan is a great deceiver, and you know, the, the, you know, we like to think, well, we're going to bind the devil, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. Look, folks, don't go there. You're not, you're no match for him. None of us in here are any match for Satan on our own. We will get squashed like a bug. The the best we can do is depend on God to give us the victory. Are there valid exorcisms? Yes, there are. I remember um, MacArthur was talking about the time when he went, when he had somebody. Say, in um, his church that they were dealing with and he walked into the room and this woman was she was obviously demon possessed she had it took ten guys to hold her down I mean she had the strength of ten guys and when he walked in they, she said no, don't don't bring him in here get him out of here you know and he said well it made me feel good at least the demons know whose side I'm on you know at least. Um, but but he he said that nothing happened until they started talking to the woman and evidently, you know, she had been in sin and all that. And they started talking to her and evangelized her. And then she actually became a believer. And when she became a believer, the demons left. You know, so is it valid? Is it happening? Yes, it is. I think of Dr. Naimi of a couple years ago. Don't know him. Uh, Ted Henry, Channel 5, introduced him to the, the area. Don't know him. Uh, okay, because he's a medical doctor. Don't know him. Very calm, but yeah, so, yeah. So you couldn't comment, but yeah. yeah, don't know. Well, we're out of time. Good discussion. We will pick up with the various speaking gifts next week and talk about them. So let's close them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're gonna. Well, this is the this is the question. The, the service times are nine and eleven. So when do you all want to start? Everybody here wants to start at night. I'll talk to Dan and find out, but um, this one's on schedule to start at nine. it's on schedule to start at nine. All right. Well, we'll start it at nine then, if it's on the schedule to start at nine. All right. Um, yeah, we'll do that. And and maybe what will happen is as we get going, we'll start it at nine fifteen. But don't tell me. Yeah. So we have the time. You know. Yeah, let's 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 try to be here at nine. 
you know, we'll see how it works out. We'll, we'll work it out. All right. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day that you've granted to us and the discussion that we've had. Pray that uh, we would ponder these truths in Christ's name. Amen.